when it all makes sense, when it all can be tracked down to something that that is logical, I think readers really enjoy that because they could see how the world got there. And it doesn't seem as far of a stretch. It doesn't seem like something that's just a flight of fancy. It seems like something that is extrapolated from our world down a direction that we worry it might go, or sometimes we hope it might go. Neil Schusterman is a masterful world builder and storyteller. His books venture into the distant future, magical realms, and alternate universes, offering readers the chance to challenge their preconceived notions of our own world while getting lost in another. Creating a place that sucks you in is no easy feat, but Neil has found the secret to making it work. I think if you're all caught up in the world, you're losing the story. And the characters in the story has to come first. And then you can let that world grow around them. And the world does grow. It's not something that just comes fully formed. Neil Schusterman is best known for his Unwind Distology, his Prince-winning Scythe series, and Challenger Deep, which won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature in 2015. In this episode, he'll tell us how his childhood obsession with details in his favorite sci-fi series ignited his passion for creating immersive settings. He'll explain why writing non-fantasy for a while was crucial to his success as a fantasy writer, and he'll share a great life hack for parents and anyone else out there who has trouble coming up with new bedtime stories on demand. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and illustrators to explore ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. Make sure to check us out on Instagram for giveaways at The Reading Culture Pod. And you can also subscribe to our newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter. I would love to first start off with, you know, what your what your childhood was like. What was it like to be, you know, Neil as a kid? Well, I mean, I, I grew up in Brooklyn. When Brooklyn wasn't the place to be, it was the place that you left. When I was uh, growing up, my dream was to move out to California. You know, I mean, I watched shows like The Brady Bunch, and I wanted to have that, you know, suburban house with the AstroTurf lawn where it's always warm and it never snows and you never have to shovel snow in your driveway. <laughs> but growing up, I always, you know, wanted to see other places. And then I sort of got that opportunity when my father came home one day when I was 16 and said, guess what? My company has transferred me. We're moving to Mexico. Two weeks later, they came, took away our furniture, put us on a plane. And there I was. I spent my junior and senior year of high school in Mexico City, which was a life-changing experience. How so? When you have an international experience, it changes your whole perspective on the world. I mean, when I first got there, I mean, I I experienced a lot of culture shock. I mean, I didn't speak Spanish. I had taken four years of French, but I had to learn. I went to the American school there. And so classes were taught in English, but socially, most people were speaking Spanish. And so I really had to pick up the language quickly. And when you've had an international experience, I found that everything else after that feels like it's easy. You know, I mean, when I went went off to college, I didn't get homesick. I was able to, you know, dare to do things that I might not, you know, normally had done because I had this experience that sort of opened up the world and didn't make anything feel like it was too difficult to do or too far to go. Yeah, I'm a huge believer in studying abroad and like cross-cultural exchange and and all that. 
Let's go back though for a second. Can you tell me about uh, what school was like for you when you were younger? What was your reading life like as an elementary school kid? I was a late reader. In third grade, I was the slowest reader in class and uh, I just didn't like reading. But my third grade teacher and I did not get along. And so she used every opportunity she could to get rid of me and throw me out of the classroom. So she would just send me to the library. When, I, when she had enough of me, she would just say, Neil, just go to the library. And so I, I basically became the librarian's pet. And the librarian would give me books that I would like. And I, being a non-reader, I wasn't really into books until she found books that I would like. And then reading became my thing. I would get thrown out of class on purpose to get sent to the library. By the time that I graduated elementary school, I got the award for the best reader in school. You know, this from a kid who was a total non-reader. But I, the stories that really got me first was, was Roald Dahl, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You know, I mean, I remember seeing the movie when, when I was, I guess, 10 years old. You know, the original one. And then after the movie, I read the book and, I, and it occurred to me that none of this existed until Roald Dahl thought of it. I mean, he, he created these characters and the Oompa Loompas and the Chocolate Factory, and none of it was in the world until he imagined it from his mind. And now it's something that is a part of culture, something that everybody knows. And I remember saying to myself, I want to do that. Yeah, he was a master of that, huh? Did you, re I remember like Matilda was a, a book that I was really into. That was like my, very, definitely my first book that I remember. He had some way of doing that, weaving those. So you were already thinking about that, like world building and creating like an entire alternate reality in terms of your reading as a kid then, huh? Yeah. I, I mean, I was always, always doing that, creating stories and coming up with different worlds and different realities and how would time travel work? And I would have come up with these entire treatises of how time travel would work, like when I was 11 years old and dealing with the paradoxes and just playing with all of that. And I would write them down like they were, like they were actual documents. <laughs> Every time I read a book that I loved, I would, you know, draw things from it. I was always a stickler for like trying to figure out what it would look like realistically. It's like with Star Trek, when I was a kid, I would draw the plans of the Enterprise and then they actually came out with actual blueprints. And I was amazed. How'd you do? I think I did pretty good. I actually found some of the plans that I drew up for spaceships from TV shows and when, you know, when I was a kid. And uh, gosh, I was very meticulous about making sure that everything was right. I think I was, I was more, more so than the actual set designers because many times the things that they had in the sets didn't actually make sense. They didn't quite fit in the space that the ship was supposed to take up. And that always infuriated me. <laughs> It could have been there, one of their consultants. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sometimes fans, honestly, I'm sure. Have you ever had that where someone like points out like an inconsistency in any of the worlds you've created? Yes, yes. And my response to that was, I meant to do that. <laughs> no, there are, there are times that there are errors. You know, there's one point in, in Unwind where uh, something that was, I think, a necklace suddenly turned into a bracelet that, you know, a character had taken and... People were arguing over it about saying, well, he intentionally did that to show that reality is subjective. And it, no, no, that was a mistake <laughs> that nobody caught. Right, right. Um, okay, new question. In the real world, do you believe in multiple dimensions? I believe it's all possible. I think the, the universe is too complex for us to ever understand. And all we can do is come up with theories 
and come up with ideas, but with the understanding that if we can come up with a really cool idea of how the universe works, then that's great because it means that the actual truth of it is even cooler than we've come up with. <laughs> so when I think of things like, you know, how small I am in relation to everything, to the universe, a lot of people find that to be disturbing. I, I find it to be comforting because it means that there's so much more. Things are so much bigger than we can possibly imagine that there is some sort of reality there that we are incapable of comprehending. And that's okay because it means that it's there. Yeah. You're the second person who's ever said that to me. And the other person was M.T. Anderson. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, I love, and I love his stuff. <laughs> it probably doesn't surprise you. Yeah, but I remember he was like, he said something to me like, it's a great comfort. And I remember, you know, the great comfort you get for yeah. knowing you're a speck in the universe. And I thought, you know, like everybody's frightened. He said, no, no, no. So <laughs> there you go. It's you and, you and Tobin. Neil's imagination is a world of its own. As a child, it kept him entertained, conjuring rules, environments, and blueprints for his favorite alternate realities and ones of his own creation. But it was a fictional New York beach he encountered as a preteen that would inspire him to tell the stories from those worlds. You're gonna need a bigger boat. I think it was when I was in eighth grade. I read Jaws because it was, it was already, you know, they already had that cover, that poster, the, you know, the shark coming up and the swimming room. And I got the book before the movie came out because everybody was talking about how it was going to be the big summer hit movie. And I loved the book, went to see the movie on opening day. I mean, I, I remember that they had to have police to block the entrance to the theater because so many people were trying to get in. It was, that movie really defined the concept of a blockbuster movie. Yeah. And I managed to get into that first matinee showing on Saturday afternoon. And I remember practically jumping over my seat at moments when the shark came out. And uh, I walked out of that theater and I said to myself, this is what I want to do. You know, I want to be like Steven Spielberg. I want to be able to come up with stories that can capture people's imaginations and keep them on the edges of their seats. So that was really the moment that I, I really said, yeah, I want to do that. Usually at this point in the show, you'll hear a single passage from a book that has inspired our guest. But Neil had to first explain to us that his brain and his computer desktop have something in common. They're both scattered with bits of information, wild ideas, and the beginnings of stories, characters, and worlds. Sometimes the clutter gets in the way. Neil, are you a person who has like a lot of tabs open at one time? Oh, yes. Yeah. My computer desktop has way too many windows open at any given time. Yeah. <laughs> when there's all these files and little snippets of things on my desktop, eventually I get very frustrated. And so I put it into a file called desktop dump. Right, there you go. And then... The desktop dump has strata like, you know, like like archaeology and all of these things in there. There's a lot of organized disorganization on my computer. Fortunately for us, Neil's organized disorganization system includes a folder full of various quotes from authors who inspire him. He read us a few of his favorites. We do not need magic to transform our world. We carry all the power we need inside ourselves already. That's Cassandra Clare. Stories may well be lies, but they are good lies that say true things and which sometimes pay the rent. That's Neil Gaiman. 
Words are, in my not-so-humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. That's J.K. Rowling. Do I dare disturb the universe? T.S. Eliot. Sometimes it's better to light a flamethrower than curse the darkness. Terry Pratchett. There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. Maya Angelou. And the one that I'm going to conclude with is one that's that I've had for quite a long time, since early in my career. And this, this one is a quote by Flannery O'Connor that just always reminds me why I do what I do. My task is by the power of the written word to make you hear, to make you feel. It is before all to make you see that and no more. And it is everything. If I succeed, you shall find there, according to your deserts, encouragement, consolation, fear, charm, all you demand, and perhaps also that glimpse of truth for which you have forgotten to ask. Do you remember when you read that? I don't remember when I read it, but what I do remember is that the second that I read it, I said, that is what I'm going to open up any speech that I give with. And so that was like the opening of, of any presentations that I gave back earlier in my career. Why? Why did you feel that way when you read it? What about it? Just that, that, that whole idea of storytelling being about giving readers all of the emotions, you know, allowing you to experience all these different emotions, but also in the midst of that, have a, that moment of truth, that thing that transcends the story which is what I'm always trying to do, is to write a story. You know, I, I, I want to tell a good story, but I want something that in some way is going to transcend the words, is going to transcend the particulars of the story that I'm telling. That is always the goal. And whether I achieve that, I mean, that's always up to the reader to decide. Although the things that really anchor me, I have also on my desktop, are, are some fan letters. Oh, yeah? Like? There is one girl who, who was a big fan of Everlost. And she wrote me to tell me that, uh, that she was and that her and her friend, her best friend, would read these books and would talk about them. And then her friend got into an accident and she was basically with her friend when her friend died. And she said in, in the days following, she returned to reading the Everlost books and they gave her comfort that, you know, that idea that everything that, and everyone we feel is lost is never truly lost. And the universe must somehow have a memory that we can't understand that holds on to everything and everyone. And she said it brought her great comfort. And to know that something that I wrote has comforted somebody in a situation like that, when there are moments when I get, when I'm frustrated, when I feel as if, as if I don't know if I have it in me to write another book, I will look at those types of things and remind myself, this is what it's about. This is why I'm doing it. Did you always know that you wanted to write for young people? When I was in uh, college, I had gotten a job working as a counselor at my summer camp that I went to when I was a kid. When I came back as a counselor, I started telling stories and I got to be known as the camp storyteller. And there is so much power to being a storyteller at a summer camp because, you know, the counselors would try to control these kids and try to, you know, they would be bouncing off the walls after they had, you know, their evening activity, you know, all the sugar that they ate. All I had to do was walk into a cabin and they would fall silent because they knew they had 10 seconds to calm down or else I would tell my story to another cabin. Ah. And so it's like my presence in the room commanded absolute silence. <laughs> but I had to come up with lots of stories to tell. 
Sometimes I would tell stories from movies that were out that they weren't getting to see. I remember I told Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, because that was during the summer and they didn't get to see it because they were at camp. And so I, I did a whole storytelling version of that. But then I would also make up my own stories. And those are the ones that the kids always wanted to hear again. And they would say to me, you know, why don't you write that as a book? I would love to read that. And so when I went back to college in my free time, I would write those stories into books. And the first two were never published. But the third one was The Shadow Club. And that was the first book of mine that was published. And that's what got me into writing for teenagers was being a storyteller at summer camp. To this day, I am still in touch with quite a few of the, uh, the kids. They're not kids anymore. They're like they're in their 40s and 50s. But I'm still in touch with them. They still remember the stories. One of them, actually, I, I visited him. He lives in Miami now. And he presented to me one of the Xerox bound copies of one of those books that I had written that I had just made my copies and given it out to them, <laughs> you know, that following summer. And he still had it. Oh, that's pretty amazing. That's like really the, be, you know, the beginning, the opening, you know, the opening of your career. Are there some other like untold Neil Schusterman stories? There was a time travel story that I had come up with my, my second year. And that was the one that I told a lot. And the thing is, it didn't make any sense. The, the logic, I was just not very good at world building. And so, you know, everything was convenient and I, was br and I broke the rules whenever it was inconvenient that I, that I set up a rule. In retrospect, looking back, you know, I mean, world building is not just something that you just do. You have to sort of learn by error and figure out what works and what doesn't work and what loses readers and what makes your world incomplete. I mean, what keeps your world from gelling? A lot of the times with world building, it's not what you know, it's knowing what you've done wrong in the past. How did you learn that? Like at school or through practice, through telling stories to your own practice. kids? Okay. <laughs> it was the storytelling and the practice. Those first two books... And all the stories that I told at camp, with the exception of The Shadow Club, were all uh, science fiction and fantasy stories. I had a professor in college, Oakley Hall, who ran the UCI writing program, which at the time was the premier writing program in the country. But it was a graduate program. I was an undergrad. But my majors were psychology and theater. But even so, I took every single creative writing course that the School of Humanities offered until there was no more creative writing courses for me to take. And Oakley Hall said, well, why don't you sit in and audit my graduate classes? I got to sort of be mentored by the guru of writing at the UC Irvine writing program. And he told me that I need to stop writing science fiction and stop all this world building. And I asked him why. And he said, because that's what you've already been doing. If you want to grow as a writer, you have to be willing to work on the things that you're not as comfortable with. You have to write genres that you've never written before. You have to practice these other aspects of writing. And, and then you'll get better at that. And sure enough, I, I followed that. You know, The Shadow Club was not science fiction. My first few novels were not science fiction or fantasy. Then when I came back with The Eyes of Kid Midas to write a story that was a fantastical story, suddenly the characters were much more real. They, you cared about them more. It wasn't all about the bells and whistles. It was about ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. I became a much better writer by not world building. So interesting. And then bit by bit, my skill at world building just grew with each book that I wrote that sort of dipped my toe back into it. 
sort of like you needed those characters to feel very grounded, like you know who they are, then you can build the world around them. I think if you're all caught up in the world, you're losing the story. And the characters in the story has to come first. And then you can let that world grow around them. And the world does grow. It's not something that just comes fully formed. Many times it's asking questions and finding the flaws in the world. Finding, well, if I set up this, then that means that this other thing can happen. So then I have to change what happened or I have to change what I set up. And sometimes you get stuck with rules that you've set up that you, you have to figure out how to live with them. A great example of that is in Everlost. Everlost is a story about these kids who have, they've had a head-on collision and so they technically they've died and they've gone down that tunnel towards the light, but they bumped into each other. They knocked each other out of the tunnel and, and now they're in a world that is in between life and death. I had to create this world in between life and death and I had to try to make it different from other limbo, you know, between life and death types of stories because I didn't want to be anything that was derivative of things we've seen before. So one, one of the rules in the world is that how you die is how you're stuck. One of the characters was eating chocolate when he died. He ended up with chocolate smudged in his face. And initially it was just a gag. But another rule in Everlost is that the longer you're there, the less you remember about what you look like. And so things start to change. But the things that are stuck with you, the things you can't stop thinking about, those things start to take over. Oh, wow. And I realized that this kid with chocolate on his face, that chocolate is eventually going to take over his entire body. Okay. And now I was stuck with this rule. How do I deal with that? And it ended up becoming one of the key parts of the story. When it just began as a gag and then something that I was stuck with because of a rule that I set up that I couldn't change because it was already published in the first book, so I couldn't change it. And I figured out how to use it and it became a crucial part of the story. It's interesting because you must have to have so much rigor around knowing exactly what the rules of the world are. And at the same time, you have to have so much openness and non-discipline or whatever the alternative to that is to see where that's going to take, to allow it to take you someplace. I think this all comes back to those drawings of spaceships and making sure that they made absolute perfect sense. If there's something in a world that I'm building that doesn't gel, that doesn't, that doesn't work, I can't let it go. Yeah, I mean, you do pay like incredible attention to these details, which obviously with the fan base of teens checking your consistency, like that bracelet that you mentioned, it's very important. But I guess, do you think that your respect for the, the rules that you create and the intricacies of these worlds are why your fans are just so attached to your stories? I think it comes down to caring about the characters. And when you care about the characters, you care about the world that they live in. And when the world makes sense, when everything that's happening in the world, when all the rules come from something, when you see why, oh, this is why this is happening in the story. When it all makes sense, when it all can be tracked down to something that, that is logical, I think readers really enjoy that because they could see how the world got there. And it doesn't seem as far of a stretch. It doesn't seem like something that's just a flight of fancy. It seems like something that is extrapolated from our world down a direction that we worry it might go, or sometimes we hope it might go. The basic idea behind Scythe was to tell a story that was the opposite of a dystopian story. 
to tell a story about what are the consequences of actually achieving the things we truly and honestly want to achieve. Rather than our worst case scenarios, our best case scenarios, there are going to be consequences to that. How do we deal with the consequences of our best case scenarios? Speaking of best case scenarios, I've read a lot about how you always strive to keep a sense of hope in your books. Yeah, I mean, I I am definitely not about hopelessness. I get very frustrated with stories that end in futility because I, as a writer, I think our, our point is to bring something into the world that in some small way makes the world better. And to put something that leaves you in a darker place than when you started is, is not helpful. So if I'm going to take a difficult subject, I'm going to try to find a way to leave you at the end of that story feeling as if, yes, you've gone through the ringer, you've had a difficult experience, but you're better for it. And so that's, it's always in my mind to leave readers with hope. That holistic approach to world building and this very hopeful lens that you have is a unique combination. And I know that you're Jewish. I am too. And I was curious if you think religion has had an impact at all on your writing. I've been told by people that a lot of my books feel very Talmudic, you know, unwind in scythe looking at these questions of ethics and morality and consciousness and trying to look at all different angles. I mean, I think that's just part of who I am. What, what excites me about writing is trying to look at things from perspectives that we haven't seen before and trying to just look at a situation, even if it's you know a fictional or fantastical situation, from every possible angle. Because I think, you know, I, I try to write stories that reflect on, on our world and our our issues and that we're facing as a, as a culture and a species. And I try to see it from just as many different angles because, the, you know, the more perspective you can gain in a situation, the better your choices and your decisions will be. So, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to look for that, that point of view that hasn't been seen. On the topic of the Scythe trilogy, my son Cassius blew through those books. In the books world, humanity has conquered it all hunger, disease, war, and even death. Individuals called scythes are those who glean or end others' lives in order to keep the population under control. For all of you Neil fans out here, Cassius drew a new tidbit out of him when he had the chance to ask a question. Which scythe do you think would be the best leader of this country or president? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I, I have like had answers <laughs> yeah. for when people ask me, what scythe would you be? Or you're what, Vonnegut. You're Von- you said you're Vonnegut. Well, yes, yes, I'm, I'd be Scythe Vonnegut. I have an answer to that question. But what, what Scythe would, would be best to lead, lead the world? I would have to say Scythe Faraday. Because, I mean, Scythe Faraday was, for me, the model Scythe. He was everything that a Scythe was supposed to be. And so I think that would be my answer. You probably get... A lot of questions like that because you visit so many classrooms. And I was wondering if you have any experiences with students that have just really stuck with you. I I do a lot of school visits and it's always rewarding, you know, when kids will come up to me and say, I never liked reading until I read, you know, Scythe or Unwind or Full Tilt. And then saying, and now I can't stop reading. You know, to to, to know that, that I, something that I wrote turned kids into readers. I I love hearing that. One of my favorite things at a school visit was uh, a student came up to me with a teacher. And you could tell, you know, the student was hanging very close to the teacher. 
and uh, and the teacher said, you know, TJ wants to ask you a question. I think it was TJ or it was it was initials. And the kid asked a question. It was about the book Full Tilt. And he asked a question and I responded and everybody around was like amazed. And I thought, well, what what's the big deal? And they say, no, no, you don't understand. TJ is severely autistic. He doesn't ask anybody questions. But something about your book got him to come forward and actually ask a question to you. And I thought, wow. I just the idea that writing, that words can do things like that. And I never take that for granted. Yeah, it really is like, it is like a magical power, honestly, when you hear something like that, you know, something that can connect like that. That's incredible. And what a teacher too, for the teacher to provide that sort of level of encouragement, you know. What kind of impact did your teachers have on you and your career? I mean, I have teacher, I've had teachers all along. My high school art teacher, my ninth grade English teacher, my elementary school librarian, you know, Oakley Hall at UC Irvine. Teachers have had a profound influence over my career and my life. And I think we can all, every single one of us, think back to teachers that changed the course of our life and made a huge difference. But, you know, many times we don't hear you know, those stories, you know, the teachers don't hear from those kids that went out and went on to do great things because they were inspired by that teacher. But I think it's important that teachers know that the importance that they have in, in their students' lives. Yeah, it is. It is so important. I, I taught for a few years, but I think like those teachers who I gave a talk one time and I remember my third grade teacher and my sixth grade math teacher, like they all came, they came to that when I was in Des Moines and it was so Cool. And really, I'm thinking like they did so much and it's so thankless most of the time, you know. So to have a student to know that like you were like, you're the ninth grade English teacher for Neil Schusterman, who went on to write, I don't know how many novels you've written, like 50. How many have you written? How many books have you written? 53. 53? Up to 53. Yeah. Do you have like a life's goal of, uh, is there like a number you're going to be like, you know what? No, I'm going to, I'm going gonna to keep on doing it until they pry that pen from my cold dead fingers. <laughs> So whatever number that is. For Neil's reading challenge, The Nature of Consciousness, he once again encourages us to dive into imagined settings in order to explore humanity, this time while also confronting a current prevailing issue in our own world, AI. I thought it would be fun to do a reading challenge that was stories about artificial intelligence and also dealt with the nature of consciousness and just pondered those subjects. I tried to pick stories that were not stories that painted, you know, the evil AI in this one-dimensional way. So the challenge is to read stories that are AI stories and stories about the nature of consciousness. And I tried to include also a young adult as well as adult. Neil has curated a reading list that you can find at thereadingculturepod.com. This episode's Beanstack featured librarian is Danielle Masterson, assistant director at the Wilmington Public Library in Massachusetts. Danielle is one of those clients who has become a friend over the years of working together. She had some wisdom to share about what qualifies as reading and settles any debate on this topic. I remember, I think it was my first year with you guys at Beanstack. We had a family who 
they came in and they said, can we count our audio books? We were doing read and read. And they said, you know, what we do is we don't watch TV. We read audiobooks and we, you know, we'll put an audiobook on while the kids are playing or, you know, while they're cleaning their rooms and stuff like that. And I said, that absolutely counts. So the kids were listening to their audiobooks. They, you know, they had um, mom's old radio. It was a CD player. They would pick up their audiobooks. And I remember staff saying to me, well, these kids are getting hundreds of hours. It doesn't count. And I said, no. It counts. Reading is reading. And as long as someone is interacting with a text in some way, they're getting the benefit of reading. This has been The Reading Culture, and you've been listening to our conversation with Neil Schusterman. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and currently I'm reading Foster by Claire Keegan, recommended by Matt Pena, and The Many Assassinations of Samir, The Seller of Dreams by Daniel Nayiri. If you enjoyed today's show, please show some love and give us a five-star review. It just takes a second and it really, really helps. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. And remember to sign up for our newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter for special offers and insights. This episode was produced by Jackie Lamport and Lower Street Media and script edited by Josiah Lamberto Egan. Thanks for joining and keep reading. Keep reading.